0: Thank mm-hmm. everyone. This is Megan with the Wrong Kind of Christian podcast. I said last week that the beginning is always the hardest for me, and that's still true. So in thinking of where to start, I spent some time asking God to guide my steps. Show me where I'm supposed to be. Ironically, he took me back to a book I've studied many times, though not necessarily by my own choice. Whenever I'm getting ready to study a new book in the Bible, I always um, I kind of ask God to lead me to the place He wants me to study, and I ask Him to teach me something practical from it. So, a little over a year ago, I was needing a new book to study, and God led me to the book of Hebrews. I've read it before, but like always, I pray for God to show me something new, show me something that I had missed before. And He did. And it was a great study. But then it was over, and time to choose a new study. So I prayed about it, kind of flipping through the Bible, looking at different options. And it was like a nudging, a little like tap, tap in my brain, and, um, you know, telling me to go back to Hebrews. I'd never studied the same book twice in a row. So I kind of resisted a bit, uh, but it wouldn't go away. If anything, the nudging got worse. So, okay, God, I hear you. Back to Hebrews we go. I must have missed something the first time around. So, I read through it again, and he continues to teach me the things through my study. I don't just uh, typically read the Bible. I I read it, and then I read the footnotes that are in my study Bibles, and I sometimes check out some commentaries, and um, sometimes check out translations if I um, if I'm trying to figure out what's what a word really means. So it's it's pretty an an in depth kind of study. So so here I go again. Studying Hebrews again, so I continue to ask God to teach me, and and He does. And time to move on to another book, right? Nope. God says one more time, Megan. And by this time, I'm kind of like talking back to Him about it, like, really, God, what am I missing? What is it that you want me to see? Please make it obvious because I'm clearly not getting it. So I read through it again, and God continues to teach me, and then. I must have finally gotten it because then, you know, the next time I, he allowed me to kind of move on with peace. So um I thought about actually taking some of the things because now, I mean, you know how it is—like you study a book so much that it, it becomes a, a well-loved book. And so I kind of thought about maybe taking what I had um, learned from that and creating uh, like a study for others. I haven't done that yet, but but I may someday. But When I was praying about what I should be bringing to all of you, where do you think he took me? Yeah, exactly. Back to Hebrews we go. So I think at least that I may understand why this time. So remember that um, I'm always looking for practical applications, and I think this may be at least one of the reasons that we're starting here. The world we live in today places so many things as highest priority in our lives, Sometimes we place our jobs as priority. Sometimes it's the act of learning. Um, Sometimes it's hobbies or, or family or friends. Those are all priorities, but we give those the top priority spot. Sometimes even the idea of church itself becomes the priority. And well, you know, in our climate today, politics takes priority a lot. We say that everything that is most important to us takes precedence in our lives, but as Jesus followers, we really know it in our heart of hearts that this isn't the real truth. So the book of Hebrews is actually all about explaining how Jesus is above all, like above all. And that's a message that our world doesn't like and is not okay with. Remember, this is our our culture of you do you and whatever makes you happy. And, and that's not what Jesus says. So um, I think we're here. I think that God brought us here to learn about what it means to put Jesus first and why we should do that. So let's dive in. In the book of Hebrews, um, I'd like to start with a little bit of background. We don't actually know who the author of Hebrews is, which is kind of unique in itself in the New Testament there's some speculation of course that that we know who it is but there's no concrete proof of anyone's authorship like some people say that it's Barnabas some say it's Paul some say Luke even um and there's actually even at one time there was a theory kind of floating around that Paul wrote it in Hebrew and then Luke translated it in Greek and that's why it's the the writing is kind of strange but None of these theories actually seem to make sense if you look at the example examples of their writings that we know that they wrote. The writing style in Hebrews is very unique. So we all we along with not knowing who wrote it, we also don't really know for sure who they're writing to. It seems to be a letter or really more of like a sermon to the Hebrews in general. So it's likely the general audience is Jewish Christians. And it seems to have been written in the late 60s AD. And you're probably going, okay, great. Well, it's kind of important because in 70 AD, the destruction of the Jerusalem temple happened. And that means that up until this point, even after Jesus's death and resurrection, and during the writing of this letter, the Jewish community was still actively making sacrifices at the temple, utilizing the law that came from the Old Testament the problem with this is that Jesus has already came and he fulfilled the law so he finished it he he basically finished the old testament law so that it was no longer necessary. We'll read more about that later in the book um about how he he was the the you know the perfect sacrifice for us. So the Jewish Christians of the time were likely tempted to go back to what they grew up knowing their traditions. I mean, we all kind of do that. So, you know, if If something um, unusual comes up or we get nostalgic and we want to kind of go back to traditions of our childhood or or customs that we're used to, the writer of Hebrews is going to encourage these Jewish Christians to stay the course by first reminding them of all the ways that Jesus is superior. So let's start with chapter one. I'll, I'll be reading mostly from the NIV, but I will switch over to the ESV, um, later on down. So chapter one, verse one through three is where we'll start here. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also, he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Okay, so let's break that down a little bit. The writer doesn't even really um, start this letter with any kind of an introduction. So maybe it really is a sermon and not a letter, but um, it's kind of classified with the letters of the New Testament. So the writer immediately just assumes that we know that God um, is real and, but he's also wanting to show that God is active. So he's not a God that just sits back and observes. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm, I'm over here going, thank goodness for that. Um, he's not just up there watching life happen. He has an active hand in what's going on in our world. So the writer makes a point to talk about um, the old ways that God did things back in the Old Testament. And you might hear me call that the OT from time to time. Anyway, he says that God has spoken to the Jews in many ways, and the Old Testament offers lots of examples of that. So, um, like you know, Daniel, he spoke through dreams, and um, in other places he spoke through angels or prophets, or sometimes even like literal words and whispers from God. The writer is working here to show the difference between then and now. So now he says in these last days, and. In verse two, when he says that in these last days, he's—it's a phrase that was used to describe the time of the Messiah. So the Hebrews would have been familiar with that saying, and what they're basically saying is that we're in the last days, meaning the Messiah has come. And remember who he's talking to; these are Jewish Christians. So these people already believed, but they were struggling with doubt, which you know is not so unlike many of us do from time to time today. If we think, um, if we think back to. What the Jews were actually expecting as a Messiah, you know, a mighty king, a ruler that would come and make Israel the greatest nation on earth. Well, we can understand why they struggled, right? That's not at all what happened. Jesus the Messiah was not at all what they were expecting. And they thought that Jesus, well, the Messiah, would come to save Israel and make it this amazing nation, like the the rulers of the world. And that's really, you know, that's not what happened. He didn't come to just save Israel. He came to save all. So we know how it is when we're expecting one thing, but something else shows up instead. It, it's a bit disconcerting. And sometimes um, we push, sometimes we push against it because it's not what we wanted or, or what we thought was going to happen. Even if the actual outcome is better in the end, sometimes we're resistant to that. So the author is trying to kind of bridge the gap for the Hebrew Christians, taking them from what they expected to what actually came in the form of Jesus Christ. So in the OT, God reveals part of himself to the Jews, but in Jesus, we see that God is really like, because let's face it, you know, that quote, like father, like son is, it's a saying for a reason. So what God revealed in the past was meant to prepare the way for Jesus, and when Jesus showed up, he actually was, um, you know, reflecting God to the to the people of the, of that time, to the Jews. And in order to convince these Jewish Christians of Jesus's greatness, the author kind of tells them seven things, um, very succinctly. He he says that God appointed His Son to be the heir like the heir to the throne. God, through Jesus, created space and time. Fascinating, we'll talk about that later. The sun reflects God's glory. The sun reveals God's nature. The sun sustains the world and the sun became the ultimate sacrifice to make us clean. And the last thing is that Jesus is now sitting at God's right hand, which is, you know, a place of honor. We'll talk about that as well. But let's keep reading first. In verse four, So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Verse five, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. So the first thing we read here is that Jesus is greater than the angels. And while this seems very common sense to most of us, to the Hebrews, the angels were like, God's agents, you know, they were um, spectacular beings that were meant to be feared and re- kind of revered, um, because he sent them to do his bidding. He was; they were his representatives. We see them mentioned several times in the Old Testament and and sometimes in the New Testament even. So the Hebrews were very familiar with with angels and and their connection to God. Verse four kind of culminates the seven things that we just talked about. Christ, the heir, the creator, the revealer, the sustainer, the redeemer, the rester, and now Christ supreme. So why is that important that the Hebrews and us today, why is it important that we grasp that Christ is superior to angels? And I think it's really about um, helping us understand Jesus's true nature, We seem to understand the nature of unknown things better if we can see similarities and differences when it's compared to something familiar. So the Hebrews were very familiar with the angels. So the author used what they knew to explain Christ's greatness. The author is also explaining that while the old covenant, like um, I'll probably call this Mosaic law most of the time, while the old covenant came through angels to Moses, the new and final covenant came through Jesus and Jesus alone, so like no angel help needed here. Another reason um, for this comparison is because there was like uh, there was a little bit of a tendency to worship the angels in the early church, um, which you know there are some people who still kind of there's a there's a unique fascination with angels, and and the writer is saying like hold up, wait a minute, don't miss the mark. Jesus is far superior than the angels. And he goes on to say, don't just take my word for it. Listen to what God has said about Jesus. And I'm going to read this section in the um, English Standard Version, just because um, I want to read some of my own notes and I've been jotting those down in my ESV Bible and not my NIV. So um, it can be kind of a confusing section because God the Father is referring to God the sun as God. And so it's a lot of God said to my God. And um, if you would like to see a graphic of this section, like a a, a digital version of this, I will um, put one up on my website. I'm, I'm a visual learner by nature, so I totally get that. And I will create that and put that on um, wrongkindofchristian.com and I'll try to link it in the show notes. But... <laughs> no promises on that, but you will be able to find it on the website. So um, verse six, let's start there. And remember, this is ESV now, not NIV. So a little little bit of wording changes. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are of those who are to inherit salvation? It's kind of a mouthful, sorry. So reading back through that it's a lot, and I know that. So I kind of, uh, what I did was I went through and I put in little parentheses next to each he and God and your and they and um, to, to kind of signify who it is. So let's kind of start again and we'll break it down a little bit um, as we go through. So verse six, and again, he brings forth the first, or he brings the firstborn into the world. He says, let all God's angels worship him. I'm not sure that there's any confusion on that one so much, but what we do see is that verse six proclaims Jesus as the firstborn and the Hebrews would have had a different understanding of firstborn than what we do today. So for the Hebrews, this would have meant, it would have been more of a title. So like in the old Testament, King David is called the firstborn, even though he is definitely not the firstborn in his family. Um, it's, it basically is more than a lineage descriptor. The firstborn is essentially the heir. So um, here, God is proclaiming the heir into the world. He brings the heir into the world. Let all God's angels worship him. So even here, God is saying, the angels are going to worship him. So he's not one of them. The angels are going to worship him. Verse seven, with my little added notes. Of the angels, he, we're talking about God the Father, he says, he, God, the son, makes his angels wins. So makes his angels is Jesus's angels and his ministers a flame of fire, his being Jesus again. So Jesus makes Jesus's angels wins and Jesus's ministers a flame of fire. I know, it's a mouthful. That's why I'm totally offering the graphic up there and you guys can check that out. But verse seven, um, God, the father, Points out that these are Jesus' angels, and he is Lord over them too. They are his ministers working for him. He's not even a peer among them. Verse 8, but the of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, he's talking to God the Son here. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So God the Father has just declared God the Son as a God. Um, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You, God the Son, have loved rightness righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God, here we're talking about God the Father, has anointed you, God the Son, with with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So, verse eight, God the Father has called Jesus his son God. And this is this is huge. The first person of the Trinity has called the second person of the Trinity God. And that is significant. And verse nine kind of explains it even more. So um, he goes on to say, and this is, you know, this is God, the father's words. Verse nine says, God, your God. And so that shows the father's position in the Trinity, that he is the authority over the son. So, you know, we're we're basically um, starting to understand the hierarchy here. God, the father, God, the son. Holy Spirit, right? Which not part of what we're reading today, but yes. Verse 10. And you, Lord, talking about the Son, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. I'm gonna stop there for a minute because God the Father just said that the Son created the foundations of the earth. And please understand, I'm not, you know, I mean God the Son, Jesus. Jesus created the foundations of the earth. I don't know about you, but the first time I read this, I, um, and truly kind of understood what what it was saying, I was blown away. I always had my head wrapped around the idea that God the Father created all. But here, it clearly says that God the Son, Jesus, laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Verse 11, they will perish, but you, the Son, will remain. You will all wear out like a garment. Oh, not you. Sorry. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You, the Son, will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you, Son, are the same, and your years will have no end. So, not only has He, um, God the Father, proclaimed Jesus as the creator of all things, He's now proclaiming Him as eternal meaning not just from death and resurrection eternal, we mean eternal from the beginning of time. And Jesus is unchanging, verse 12 explained, that um, everything else will change. You know, the things will end, um, but God the son are the same and your years will have no end. So meaning that Jesus, um, the Jesus of these early church years the jesus that uh, the apostles walked with and knew and and then we're writing about later that jesus is the same jesus today he hasn't changed based on our progression and our advances he hasn't changed based on technology he hasn't changed based on invention or um you know for the for the sake of progression he hasn't changed he remains the same and he will always remain the same eternally what we see in verse 13 and to which of the angels has he ever said sit at my right hand until i make your your enemies a footstool for your feet this is the seventh time the writer of hebrews uses hebrew scripture which is the old testament to show jesus as above the angels he literally tells jesus to sit at his right hand meaning jesus is god's literal right hand man and most of us know the significance of like if you say that someone is your right hand man then that is a person who acts on your behalf and a person who has your best interests and a person who does what you say and is a person who who basically carries out your wishes and that is what jesus is to god he to god the father he is the right-hand man. And the very last um, last verse here, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Isn't that interesting? Here, verse 14 calls the angels ministering spirits. So they're not, um, angels don't rule over us. And they're not um, necessarily there just to, uh, rescue us when we when we um need them to you know show up in in times of trouble but they are there to serve god and he says sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation well that's us guys we are the redeemed are the ones who are going to inherit salvation so they're sent out to serve for our sakes which is just really cool to to think that i mean you know, that we have angels out there literally watching over us. And anyway, that is chapter one of Hebrews. And I hope that you um, are are enjoying uh, kind of a deep dive. Like I, I'm not um, much of a, a feel-good kind of, um, as much as I said last week, I'm not a fire and brimstone kind of person. I'm also not just a feel-good person. So um, going through Hebrews, it'll be a lot like this. Like uh, we will dive in and we will try to understand what it meant then and, you know, apply it to now. So, um, I hope you're, you're looking forward to the ride. Um, before we get off of here today, I did want to kind of talk about the blog a little bit. So, um, on the wrong kind of christian.com, no, the, sorry, just wrong kind of christian.com the, this week we, I posted an article about the, you know, it's a holiday gift guide and I know that some of you are probably thinking, "What? It's too early, too early for a holiday gift guide." But I, um, I know some of you also have your decorations up because you know it's it's been a rough year, <laughs> and so we're looking forward to a little bit of happiness and joy. And and so um, I'm with you guys. I'm with you who want to put your decorations up now and do that. You should absolutely do that. I um, I did post a gift guide though, so if you are looking for some cheaper options uh, for for family and friends this year because it's been a rough year and financially it's been rough on, on many of us. So I have um, a gift guide up there just called the 2020 Holiday Gift Guide, 15 unique items under $50. So some of the things you can find up there, one of them that I think is really cool is an ornament that has uh, what they're calling rescued Bibles. Um, So it's Bibles that were going to be recycled or thrown away in landfills an organization has collected those and is using uh, those Bibles to. Uh, they take the each individual verse and they cut them up into little snippets and they fill this clear glass ornament with these little Bible verses. And I just think that's really cool. So, if you uh, and partially because Justin is one of these people, um, my husband who you know, if we're at an auction or something and there's like a picture of Jesus or a Bible, he he just can't quite let it stay there. So I think maybe the rescue Bible thing, like that is totally up his alley. But anyway, it's a really cool gift. And there's also some, you know, very practical things, um, desk, uh, laptop, adjustable laptop um, desks and like that fit over your lap. So when you're sitting on a sofa or in bed or whatever, you can still have your laptop there or uh, like, I'm always good for slippers. So, slippers are on the list every year. Slippers. Anyway, check that out. Um, make sure to come back next week. I am, um, we'll see what's happening next week. I potentially have a guest coming in um, and we will hopefully make that happen. And if not, we'll go on to chapter two and I will talk to you guys next Thursday. Have a great day.